0: We saw a piece from the conversationcom the other day. Andrew and I were looking around, and this one just literally jumped off the page at us, and we decided we've got to call this guy and talk about this story. What motivates changing behaviors during COVID-19, from toilet paper hoarding to physical distancing? It's a pleasure to welcome our first guest to the program today. He is a professor in the Faculty of Education at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. Professor Terry Soleus joins us this morning. Good morning, Terry. Welcome to the program. Good morning. How are you? I'm very well, thank you, Terry. It's great to have you with us. You are a, pleasure. Uh, you are a, a person who has devoted a great deal of his professional career to the study of motivation, Professor Solias. And your article is about what motivates changing behaviors. And you talk about toilet paper hoarding, and we all laugh because we all did it in March a long time ago. We, we kind of look at ourselves now going, well, why did we do that? So why don't we start right there at the motivation back in March? Professor Solaas, the head. Sure. So
1: my had, friends call me Terry. Please go with that. You got me on that one.
0: You got um, it. And how? How? What? What got us all jacked up in huge numbers, heading to every store in the country to buy every roll of toilet paper in the land?
1: So there are a couple of ways that we could think about this one. First of them being is that we saw loads of other people doing it. So kind of a human version of monkey see monkey do we see one person doing we're thinking hey they've got the right idea we'll go right on over and do the same thing of course and it might have been because a sense of fear that we were having because they were because they were going to run out that we weren't going to be able to reach out to something Uh so toilet paper's value in our eyes went through the roof and when its value goes through the roof and our rationalism might have been a little left behind we go out and we join in the frenzy therefore feeding into everybody else we made it more likely that other people would do the same thing because other people might see us doing it.
0: And and that had some of us, Terry, actually uh, overpaying for toilet paper sold off the back of a pickup truck, for crying out loud.
1: Indeed. Indeed, and some of us, and uh, might also have extended the hand sanitizer, as you might recall. There were the folks who were selling hand sanitizer for like twenty dollars for a little tiny container.
0: That's right. So, what would motivate someone to buy a little dinky container of hand sanitizer for twenty bucks when you know it's worth about three or four?
1: So. In that case, you would say that you could look at it and think, okay, it's one of their values. Which one? It's not exactly an intrinsic value because they aren't doing it for the heck of it. It's not an attainment value because they know it's not because c- they know it's not making humanity a better place or humankind a better place. We also know that we have and are left with one option. It's an extrinsic task value. Someone's doing it because they think they can make a buck. You're left with a possibility of making money what might be less politely called greed
0: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, and uh, I, mer- I remember at the time and he's done it a few times since but i remember at the time premier ford practically losing his mind because of the uh, the uh, the obvious greed at play and really came down hard on people who were taking grotesque advantage of that type of situation didn't seem to change much behavior but his remarks did make a lot of people feel better
1: Indeed, they did make a lot of people feel better because they thought it was going to lead to a profound change. I bet you what made more of a change were the incredible fines that were beginning to be levied on people. Yes, the possibility of making a quick buck is offset when you can see how you can very quickly lose every bit of money you made in that way.
0: So motivation is what you've devoted a lot of your life's work to, Terry. And and where does it come into play from the perspective of healthcare professionals now? Because it's one thing to motivate people to get out there and look after their personal needs, whether it's toilet paper or hand sanitizer or whatever related in some way to the to the pandemic. But then it comes down to uh, uh, there's a whole other level of activity going on. Talk about that, too.
1: Absolutely. So I'll take a step back and I'll explain how I see motivation first. And oh. I think that will help fully clarify my answer to your question. I do so, too. Thank you. So if you can imagine that like pe- people have been studying motivation for a long time, a much, much longer than I have been in terms of uh, how they've gone about studying it. So I'm, I'm a fairly early career researcher. So not a full professor. I'm an adjunct. Um, the, uh, the, the, motivation framework that I use is called expectancy value cost theory. And I use it because it's real easy to explain to people and it's really applicable to lots and lots of different situations. Okay. The first one expectancy. So your degree of confidence with something, if you're confident you can do something, you're more likely to do it. So there's the expectancy. You can call that one confidence essentially. And then there's the values, the things that are good about something. So the things that, that you get from doing this. So for, and there are a couple of different kinds of task value. There's the intrinsic task value, which is the, I do this because it's fun. Some people like running. I don't. I don't see much intrinsic task value in running, but there are other people that think it's really fun. Mm-hmm. Or in the case of, say, healthcare providers, there are people who think providing healthcare for people is fun. They get a rush from doing it. I feel good about helping a fellow person. Sure. There's the attainment task value, which is that what I do is important. I, I see a value of what I do for society. And I have the ability to contribute to making the world a better place and fulfill my own identity at the same time. A lot of, I feel good about doing this because I know what I'm doing is important and because it helps other people. There's the attainment task value. And there's a last task value called uh, utility task value, which is all to do with, if I do this, I get this. It's very transactional, mostly driven by rewards and punishments. So say making a buck or losing a buck. Mm -hmm. Or in this case, the fact that Healthcare providers are, are appropriately compensated for their degrees of education. They get, they, they get pretty good pay. Um, those two, so the expectancies and the values, those things, you can consider them as being stacked up against the costs of doing something. So the reasons why not to do something. Like, for example, if your job had really, really long hours, that would be something that you would consider as a cost. Or if it meant that you were doing shift work, Like a a lot of healthcare providers do, it means that you would be away for a series of days and a series of nights from your family. Mm -hmm. You have to consider that. That makes the, the task less attractive. So if the expectancies and the values are high enough, you're actually quite motivated to do something as long as they overwhelm the cost or they overbear the cost. If the costs are just too high, people won't do it. Like what we saw with that example of the early hoarding the fines that were in place for people caught hoarding were so high that it made the prospect very unattractive. Right. People stopped, do- people essentially stopped doing it for fear of they would get caught and they would be having to pay that huge fine. I think Ontario was something like $10,000, $100,000 if you're caught.
0: hmm Yeah. So uh, uh, what I'm what I'm curious about is is where people find themselves sometimes on the other side of the coin, because now now that we're uh, into this covid experience, as far as we are, Terry, a lot of people Mm -hmm. not not. Well, there is a significant element of the population that has decided for whatever reason to disagree with some of the public health orders and that that disagreement has now um, come to the point of a movement, you could say, certainly in some Indeed. parts in some parts of the country. Talk about the motivation behind that. Sure. So um, an
1: important thing to consider when we're discussing people's motivations is that it's very contextual and it's rather personal. The same things that motivate you or I might not motivate a third or a fourth or anybody else. Sure. So understanding that it's a different type of internal logic that drives a person's motivation and while it might not seem logical to another person it seems very logical to them so it it, it seems to make an awful lot of sense to them now in the case of people who are say um, who are anti-mask or who are uh, anti-corona vaccine or are the anti-physical distancing the reason being and one way you could think about it is that the costs of them maintaining a mask for the costs of them or like maintaining the wearing of a mask or mm-hmm. the cost of them going and getting the vaccine or the cost of them keeping physical distance from loved ones and ones that and people that, that they care about just seem too high and it's driving a reaction of theirs mm-hmm. to, to disagree with those public health workers so i'll take those one at a time in terms of the mask there are some people that are really really uncomfortable wearing masks. True. so whether it's from the fact that they can't fully see other people's faces or that it makes them get hot and sweaty or that it makes They've decided that the cost of wearing a mask is too high for any of the value that they would gain from it. Now, I don't agree with that. And and our public health system certainly doesn't Mm -hmm. either. But to them, the cost of wearing a mask is just too high. It's too uncomfortable. Hopefully in the winter, it gets to be a little bit more comfortable and we aren't getting hot and sweaty from wearing them all the time. But it's just too, the, the cost of wearing one is just too high and it overwhelms the value that they get from it. So whether it would be that they're not as concerned about the possibility of, say, catching and being asymptomatic of coronavirus and passing it to someone else, or that they aren't indeed seeing too many other people so that the fear of them spreading it to other people is reduced. They've made the calculation and the mental math in their mind that wearing a mask, isn't going to that wearing a mask isn't going to make that huge of a difference for them again i have to be very clear on this one public health public health and all and our scientists seem to disagree with that quite a bit for very good reason with loads of evidence but to them and it's only focused on them your motives are very personal they've made that calculation and decided that it isn't
0: yeah that
1: that it isn't worth.
0: Sterling Fox with you. George Affleck co-hosting this uh, this morning. George has uh, finally got all the gear working. Good morning to you. <laughs>
2: nice to be here finally.
0: That's great to have you with us. Uh, joining us uh, from Queen's University is Professor Terry Soleus. He studies motivation, he's in the Faculty of Education there and studies uh, motivation. And we're talking about uh, some of the, uh, the, the rationale going on, uh, some of the thinking, the group think, I suppose, Terry, would be another way of approaching this as uh, the population has responded to a pandemic. And one of the most strong uh, indicators of motivation to readjust our lives to the tune of many millions of us, Terry, has been the challenge of working from home. Mm -hmm. And uh, some people are pulling that off better than others. I've been very, very fortunate
1: with trying to make that work for me.
0: So again, now this, there's a motivation reality here, uh, because, uh, you, if you're going to become the kind of productive employee you were in the workplace, you're going to have to make some modifications to your, to the way you approach work from home. Some people did that very enthusiastically. Finally, this is, this is what I've always wanted to do anyway. And others still, Terry, still awkward working from home, really terribly missing the workplace
1: indeed so uh, li- uh, as i mentioned a little bit before motivation is quite contextual and it's quite personal to the individual circumstances yeah. so in my case I, I i don't have any i don't have any children so working from home i'm relatively free from distractions i mean we do have a a, a puppy that that is just recently discovering her voice and so on and so forth. But really, that hasn't been impacting me all that much because I'm able to kind of give the door a close. and I'm able to focus and get all my horsepower on the task. Sure. Somebody who's living at home with lots and lots of relatives might not be able to do the same thing. My costs of working from home are different than another person's.
0: Mm-hmm. And still, uh, the the function is uh, p- needs to be performed if you in, in, uh, plan on receiving a paycheck. So somehow, or another you've got to adapt or pivot, being the uh, yeah, operative uh-huh. word these days. Absolutely,
1: pivoting all the way, channeling our. Uh, for anybody who's a who, who, who's a fan of the TV show Friends, the uh, the moment where Ross keeps telling people to pivot as they're trying to bring in that sofa. That has been what I've been hearing, and a lot of other people I think have been hearing since March. We have to pivot with this. We have to pivot with this. And it's starting to wear on some people more than others, which is what, what we're starting to see with a degree of fatigue with following, say, public health orders or, or working from home orders and just wanting to try and get back a sense of normalcy, the normalcy that we didn't know that we missed until March 18th, 2020.
0: Excellent point, Terry. And fatigue, I mentioned this to you just before the news, uh, it, is a fa- it is a reality. and And I think it combined with inconsistent government messaging uh it's it's allowing for a greater percentage of the population to question some of the messaging and i don't know that that's altogether a positive thing in terms of getting better as a group
1: i would be inclined to agree the fact that there's a the fact that there's a regional um system in place in ontario i'm sure across the country in terms of different levels of restriction existing in different places of it one of the more um Crude but accurate metaphors that I heard for it is kind of like having peeing and non-peeing sections in a swimming pool. Mm-hmm. So it, it, it's all one big system, and pe- and things move from one section to another in terms of in terms of getting from one spot to another. So, for example, in, in Ontario, we were seeing that folks from lockdown zones were making their way to not locked down yep. places to be able to conduct and try and get a sense of normalcy. They're craving normality. They were seeing that people who didn't have the same restrictions on them as others were, and they were looking to try and experience that. They wanted to feel the sun on their face as it were. Mm -hmm. Now, again, we should be clear that there's a reason that that public health policies are there for a reason, that they're bounded and that they're grounded in the best available evidence and that we'd all be better off listening to them.
2: Terry George here, uh, just a uh, curious uh, – it's really interesting stuff, and uh, the pool uh, <laughs> reference is very
0: <laughs> – I liked it too. <laughs> exactly. Actually, that really says
2: it all. And I think from a government you know, administration and political point of view, that's really telling because how do governments measure when they have to make decision-making, especially when you regionalize it, uh, whether a version – versing a national ver- decision-making, you have this politics at play. And how do they measure that? So, well, I should be harder. I should be lighter. I should be – you know, how do, they, how do they use this information?
1: So, in terms of how that intersects with people's motivations, so the people, the, the, the inconsistent messaging, when there's a lot of different messages available, people tend to pick the one that they like, right? If there are loads and loads of different messages available, like, for example, some people are saying that, oh, this is the worst thing ever, and some people are saying, ah, it's not that bad. There's a temptation to listen to the one that gives you a little bit more freedom, a little bit more autonomy, and therefore amplifies fewer of the costs on you. Mm-hmm. So in terms of having that, that you, you hit the nail on the head a moment ago when he said the consistent messaging is what's causing, is what's driving a lot of this public health, uh, public health what, what, what I'll term public health misbehavior. But there are loads and loads of other factors at play, including the one personally at home, that drive how people interpret those messages. And understanding that that consistency is the one that's the most likely to get everyone kind of behaving consistently in terms of trying to go along with these public health, with these public health guidelines, like wearing the mask mm-hmm. or wearing or keeping the physical distance from people, or indeed what defines as going out for essential. Some people felt that different things were essential to others. And I think our public health messaging needs to have more examples in terms of what exactly qualifies as being essential, like going and seeing your doctor. That's essential. That's preserving life going to Costco to try and, going to Costco to try and pick up uh, a sofa honestly is that really essential i guess if you didn't have one and you don't have anywhere else to sit it's probably more important but does it really raise the bar to being essential mm-hmm. some people would say yes some people would not our public health guidelines need to do a better job of outlining what's really essential and what's not.
0: Well, let's talk a little bit about what's uh, on ep- uppermost on everyone's mind literally across the country this morning, Terry, and that's the proximity of vaccines in our lives we know that we have some already some canadians have been vaccinated another half million doses will arrive in the country in the next few weeks so more of us will get there talk let's talk about what the public health officials in this country need to do to effectively motivate canadians to get vaccinated
1: so there are a couple of levers that they have that are available. I say levers, but really what I mean are options available to them that are outlined by different motivation strategies. Some of them are better than others. So, for example, making getting that vaccine mandatory will definitely cause some pushback. Some people will see that as being government overreach, whereas making it purely voluntary is going to cause real issues as well, because there will be some people who volunteer to go get it, and there will be some people who volunteer not to based on their own personal motivations yep. for doing it. Some people would feel that this vaccine has been rushed. So far, there hasn't been any evidence of that. There hasn't been real any, any true adverse reactions to these vaccines uh, on, on a scale that, that would cause real worry. So the governmental options they have are making it mandatory, or making it voluntary, and something that's kind of in between option, which is that if you want to be able to, say, start traveling, you would need to prove that you have the that you have obtained the vaccine or immunity of another way. And that would result in people saying, well, I do want to travel, therefore, I'll do this. So one is a purely voluntary perspective, which which is relying on people's attainment or attainment task values. I don't think anybody thinks getting a vaccine is particularly fun, but it'll be whether they think it's important or whether it's their utility task values for in the case of making it mandatory, which is that someone's telling me that I need to do this. And there's kind of the middle path, which is that if you want to be traveling and making good use of that Canadian passport, you'll need to make sure that you have that vaccine so that you aren't going to be taxing other healthcare systems while you're visiting.
0: And as far as messaging goes, we're almost out of time here, but I'm curious about, because uh, you're the pro in this conversation, Terry, is it is it more going to be more effective for this messaging about how important it is for the benefit of us all, for most of us, to get vaccinated? Is that messaging coming from Teresa Tam or Justin Trudeau going to be more or less effective than if it was coming from someone like, say, a Haley Wickenheiser or a community leader, someone we look up to who is not... An- an official
1: the short answer to that question is that you'd need to hear it from both hearing it from both would make it more trustworthy the reason being is if you're hearing it from both official and unofficial and, and unofficial ambassadors for that particular for that particular outcome in this case people getting vaccinated yeah. you want to hear it from as many people as you can it increases your confidence when you hear it number one when i hear something from our when i hear something from our prime minister or from our federal or from our, our federal um from, from our federal organizations and so on, it does give me a sense of confidence. It gives me a sense of legitimacy. I, I, I feel like it is more trustworthy than if I'm hearing it from someone on the street. But if I'm only hearing it from official channels, if it's only an official vision of what Canada could and should be doing, I'll feel disconnected from it. I won't feel the same connection as if I heard it from somebody that I knew and trusted. So uh, in, in the case of, say, Haley Wickenheiser, i I. I I know this person, I've seen this person, Mm. I've seen them on a national stage, they have a lot of legitimacy, I feel a personal realization and connection to them. The example that I'll use is how much more do people trust what their local public health officials are saying than, say, any of more federal public health officials. We feel more of a connection to them, we trust them, we have confidence in what they say. So I think it's going to be listening to the chorus rather than any one
0: soloist. Interesting stuff. Professor Terry Saleus from Queens University has written an interesting piece at theconversation.com entitled, What Motivates Changing Behaviors During COVID-19? From Toilet Paper Hoarding to Physical Distancing. It's a great piece, Terry. Thanks very much for taking time to join us this weekend and uh, uh, run it up the flagpole, so to speak. It's a fascinating conversation. We do appreciate your time
1: my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me, and all the best to you and your listeners.
0: Our next guest is, uh, this is an interesting conversation, and George, it kind of flows from the chat we had with our professor friend at Queen's University in terms of what people, what motivates people to behave in certain ways, uh, particularly in response to public orders, and of course, especially during a pandemic.
2: And and your freedom, for sure. Absolutely.
0: So our next guest wrote a piece uh, in the Georgia Strait a few days ago, uh, talking about something called the Oaks Test, which sets a standard for permissible government infringements of charter rights in a situation like a pandemic. Our guest is criminal defense lawyer, Sarah Lehman. Sarah, good morning and thank you for joining us.
3: Good morning and thank you for having
0: me. Well it's good to have you with us Sarah. We haven't talked for a while. Compliments of the season to you. And you you talk in your article about uh, something that uh, is is being noticed more and more and I'm quoting as the second wave of COVID-19 hits an all-time high in British Columbia COVID-related fatigue is also ramping up. We had a chat with a motivation guy in Ontario last hour, Sarah, about fatigue and what motivates people to continue to toe the line or not. And a lot of people who have decided not are using the, the, the Charter As their shield. I have a charter right to do this. No one has the right to superimpose anything on top of my charter right. And you in your piece say, wait a second, no rights are absolute.
3: That's right. (laughs) That's exactly it. Charter rights do exist, but they are absolutely not absolute. And in fact, the charter itself contemplates how rights can be properly limited under the law here in canada and in fact our charter rights are limited almost every single day when we go into society and we interact with other people Uh, but it's just not quite as obvious or pronounced as it is during a global pandemic
0: so sarah give us an example or a few examples if you can please just of how these uh, supposedly inviolable charter rights are infringed upon routinely
3: Sure. Well, how about if you're driving your motor vehicle and you end up being pulled over by a police officer who wants to check for your driver's license or your sobriety and they ask you to provide a breath sample or show them your um, driver's license or other documents, that is a small infringement on your charter rights and one that is permissible. Or, for example, uh, the illegal status of child pornography. Again, that is another... uh, Uh, permissible infringement on people's charter rights so there are all kinds of charter rights that are properly limited within our society but again we don't really notice them as much or perhaps we feel like it's completely justified except for when we're in a global pandemic and it starts becoming much more apparent and obvious everywhere we go
0: you talk about something in this piece you wrote in the georgia straits sarah called the oaks test what is that
3: Well, the Oaks test is a test that was established by the Supreme Court of Canada way back when in order to create a legal framework that allows us to think about whether or not a particular infringement is justified or not. Um, And so it is a complicated legal test. There's a number of different facets to it. But what the court has to consider, of course, is whether or not that particular infringement is rationally connected to the government's objective or purpose in uh, ordering it, uh, and whether or not it's something that can be done through less onerous means. So those are two of the components of the Oaks test that must be applied in order to see if the infringement is justifiable at law or if it cannot
0: stand. Can we talk about uh, perhaps the most dominant case in the news these days? And this is literally in the last 72 hours, uh, Sarah, when we've seen a number of churches, I believe three in the Chilliwack area, charged uh, and uh, looking at facing fines in excess of uh, a total of something like $18,000 for holding services when the public health order was to the contrary. How do you think that case is going to. You're a criminal defense lawyer. Would you take-
3: that case? No, it's definitely not my area, although I have heard rumblings that uh, some of those churches are um, possibly going to be criminally charged, which is quite interesting as well. But at this point, as far as I'm aware, it is bylaw infractions Uh, for having contravened those orders. Um, That being said, I think this is going to be a rather interesting case, uh, but one that I think will be Fairly straightforward for our courts because when we're thinking about limiting charter rights, um, one of the one of the things that we might want to think about as well is whether or not there is a public health orders in place, um, or what the greater good for the community looks like. And in a case like this, where we have a global pandemic, uh, we have a viral infection that we're trying to stop the spread of, I think that the courts will take a more liberal view with respect to those infringements. Than they
2: normally would. So, how do, how do we know when we're breaking the law and breaking the charter? Or how do we, you know? Just as a normal person driving down the street, and you get pulled over, and you have these arguments, say, "Ah, oh, that's I'm, you're breaking my right. These are my rights." And you know, there seems to be this uh, confusion about the laws and then the freedom of your rights. And this oak test is an example of that. How do you know when you're when they're pushing the boundaries? When when law enforcement's pushing the boundaries of your rights?
3: <laughs> That's a great question, and it's one that comes up all the time for me, particularly as a criminal lawyer, when I have clients who are saying, "Oh, that you know, you're breaking my rights mm, or these mm-hmm. are my rights." Um, you know, the best advice really for people um, is to just use common sense, um, and if they are dealing with the police state, to largely comply, and then hire a lawyer later. Right, (laughs) You definitely don't want to get yourself in a worse-off position by trying to allege charter rights or individual rights and liberties, particularly where they may not exist in the way that you think they do.
0: So how then could uh, the—back to the churches, if you don't mind, before we take the break here, Sarah— how then could a bylaw infraction morph into a criminal charge?
3: Well, that's a great question. It's one of the ones that a lot of people are wondering about. Um, one of the interesting things about this is that the Chilliwack RCMP has said that they've recommended charges but are staying very tight-lipped about what those charges could be okay. or whom they're recommending them for. So I'm interested to see how it plays out. But I think the reason why this could be happening is because it appears as though the bylaw offences are not deterring those particular religious organizations from continuing to break health orders. Right. And so they need to ramp up their... Um their uh, response in order to deter them from engaging in this behavior further
0: Mm -hmm. and of course and we've seen the argument before uh, some and I'm not uh, attributing this to anyone in this particular circumstance here in BC but some people in the religious community will simply tell you point blank that they follow a higher order and don't really care what the locals have to say Uh, they they know who calls the shots and it's nobody with a sheriff's badge in their town
3: Right. Well, unfortunately, I don't think the courts will take the same view of that, uh, particularly in a situation like this where public health is of the utmost importance.
0: George Affleck co-hosting with me today. Sarah Lehman, criminal defense lawyer, on the line. Uh, Have she wrote a piece in the Georgia Strait just a few days ago talking about when it is a permissible time for the government to infringe upon your charter rights? And goes on to point out that there are no said there is no such thing as an absolute. Right. Let's open up the phone lines here, too, by the way. 604-280-9898. If you have any questions for Sarah, uh, you're most welcome to join us. 604-280-9898. Sarah, the fact that Prime Minister Trudeau uh, uh, invoked the Emergency uh, Act at the beginning of this pandemic, uh, what did that do in terms of setting the stage for government to be able to infringe upon and indeed push aside charter rights? When necessary?
3: Well, it certainly opens up the gates for it on um, a much larger context because the ultimate test, really, when you're trying to consider whether or not an infringement on a charter right is permissible, boils down to that individual right versus the community uh, interest. And so, here where we have a pandemic and it's very important for us to make sure that people are being kept safe and there's a state of emergency that's been declared certainly the balanced tips for community safety and the public interest.
2: What, what, Sarah what about rules that change like during for example 9/11 after that there was a lot of things that changed as far as access to people's private information certainly we saw a lot more in America than Canada but and some of those things never get reversed and, and they don't we don't see that clawback from those things and government has more access forever.
3: Yes, and I mean, that is certainly a danger because big events like that will shape public policy and they will shape legislation moving forward. I don't see that here. Um, All of the orders that have been put in place are temporary health orders. And so I think that these things will end up uh, going away eventually once we have a vaccine and once COVID-19 becomes a thing of the past, hopefully sooner than later. Um, But certainly it is always a concern when there are government intrusions in terms of whether or not those are going to be temporary or permanent and what long-term effects they're going to have.
0: You talk about no rights being absolute and then back to the churches in Chilliwack story where, of course, freedom of religion and assembly uh, is uh, two rather paramount charter rights that it's Sunday morning, Sarah. A lot of people getting up and uh, what and on a typical Sunday would be getting ready to go to church. And, of course, that's just not going to happen in most cases. Some people OK with that. They get it. Other people still really mad as H.E. double hockey sticks that they can't. So uh, let's talk about that a little bit.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And of course, uh, I think that every person has made very serious and significant compromises during the course of this pandemic. I mean, I don't think anybody was expecting this, you know, a year ago uh, when 2020 was just around the corner, but all of us have had to make very big compromises. And unfortunately, uh, some of those compromises are around public worship because it's something that brings people together in person mm-hmm. and know that that's one of the main things the main thing that risks the spread of viral infre- infection and so it's very important to consider what impacts that's going to have on your community and if there's other ways perhaps that they can temporarily mm-hmm worship or assemble for the purposes of worship, and we're seeing all kinds of interesting and innovative ways that people are, are doing that right. for other reasons, mm-hmm. and there's really no reason it can't be applied to this as well.
0: All right, let's go to the phone board here. Terry's been waiting patiently. Good morning.
4: Yeah, good morning, and Merry Christmas. Happy New Year to you guys. Um, I'm not necessarily like a—I a, a hardly ever go to church, if ever, uh, but— you a way, I can see how those people are kind of concerned about what they may be perceived to see as a double standard, because people can go to the bar, you know, and kind of sit around and, like, drink and stuff, but, um, you know, they're not allowed to go to church. Uh, it must be extremely frustrating, especially if... Um, I know somebody that I, I work with, actually, who his social network is uh, his church, and it keeps him going, actually. He's really um, involved with a lot of people. He's got a social network as well as a spiritual network. Yeah. He also volunteers at a church shelter as well, which I think is really good. But now what he's doing is he's doing the right thing. It's like a virtual kind of church meeting, but... Um you know, I, I like I said, I can see why these people are kinda of frustrated because, you know, like I said, you can go to the bar and drink, whatever, but
0: Uh, That's a good point, Terry, and I appreciate your making it, sir. It's the inconsistency in the messaging that's causing a great deal of the fatigue that we're beginning to see. You're the lawyer. You're the criminal lawyer in this conversation. A lot of calls coming into your office these days from people who are misbehaving, and in some cases, just out of sheer frustration. No recommendation for, uh, for, for continuing such behavior, but there is a fairly high degree of frustration, a lot of which, as Terry points out accurately, is due to mixed and sometimes confusing messaging. Oh
3: absolutely and I do think there is a degree of arbitrariness um, when it comes to the application of these health orders as well. Um, You know I think that one of the most pronounced ways that we're seeing it is the policy around masks in schools Mm -hmm. um, and no masks in schools. I know there's a lot of frustration around that particularly coming from teachers and other support staff who are working in schools asking well, why is that the case when masks are mandatory everywhere else? So there is an arbitrary nature to how things are being applied, um, and I certainly understand people's frustration in that.
2: Do you see uh, the courts and yourself being inundated with uh, battles in the future for people and groups who felt like you infringed on my rights? I, I want to fight this, uh, and they you know clog up our court system with uh, you know, including our premier who himself was like, uh, "Oh, my family is we're going to meet," and you know, if he would get fired in those kind of situations. Are we going to see a lot of people fighting the fines they're getting and, and fighting fighting these issues?
3: I do think that we're going to see drawn out legal battles for probably the next decade when it mm. comes to this pandemic. Um, not just people who are fighting perhaps tickets um, or charges they've been issued, but also charter challenges um, like the Chilliwack Church case, um, which I expect will turn out to be uh, a legal battle that we'll see in our court system, um, and also potentially challenges around what could be a mandatory or quasi-mandatory vaccine in the future. So I do think that there are going to be a number of different challenges happening and court cases happening, and that this is something that's not going to go away in short order.
0: Interesting, it's it's going to, and and as if the courts need extra clogging, uh, this is pretty much guaranteed to do it too, isn't it, Sarah?
3: I think so. Any time we see big changes in the law or public policy, we can expect that the courts are going to deal with it down the road.
0: hmm. Uh, we appreciate your time on a Sunday morning. It's good of you to join us and, and help clarify some of this, because uh, a lot of people are uh, more than a little bent out of shape, and again, frustration and fatigue, a very big part of it. And perhaps uh, inconsistent messaging is not really helping very much. So we do appreciate your help this morning, Sarah Lehman, in and, and helping to clarify some of these issues for us.
3: Oh, it's my pleasure.
0: And joining us from Toronto is uh, Amber Mack, who is here to talk about digital gifts And this Christmas 2020. Boy, everything, everything is just, me out here. just <laughs> different. <laughs> Holy smokes. Amber, thanks for joining us. Good morning.
3: Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Well,
0: it's great to have you with us. And you're all about digital gifts for Christmas 2020, because that's pretty much the way it has to happen this year, right?
5: Absolutely. So I have uh, four different ideas Uh, these are easy things to do kind of last minute digitally to stay safe. And it's everything from making someone's day with a quick coffee all the way through to providing someone with an online course that could change their life. So, yeah. So I wanted to start just with a a simple one. Uh, Many people love Tim Hortons, of course, but they may not know that there is now a new feature built into the Tim Hortons app called Timbit Forward, and this lets you very easily use any of your rewards to email someone a gift so you can send them enough rewards points so that they can get a coffee or a box of Timbits. I've been doing this for the past few days, and it's just kind of fun, especially for those people. Again, maybe you don't want to spend hundreds of dollars, but you want to just kind of make their day.
0: Well, exactly, and you know, and it's, it's an acknowledgement. It's not a major commitment. It's just a, hey there, uh, have a coffee on me, right?
5: Yeah, it's really sweet. And I think it's all part of this idea of paying it forward. So I love that one to start. Uh, And I mentioned as well, in terms of changing someone's life, we know a lot of people are kind of hunkered down these days. And so many people are familiar with Masterclass, which allows you to take these really great high-end online courses to learn about everything from space exploration to creative writing from Margaret Atwood. That's another great way to gift someone something. You can go and buy them a membership to Masterclass. And I just checked and they have a really great holiday deal, so it's a two-for-one. So you can also get yourself a course as well.
0: And how many many classes would you take? If you sign up for one of these courses, Amber, how many classes would you get from a Jane Goodall or a a Gordon Ramsay or other celebrity uh, well-informed person?
5: Yeah, that's a really good question. There are actually dozens and dozens of different classes. So well, the cool thing is there are also Canadians on there. So I mentioned Margaret Atwood. Yeah, There's yeah. also Chris Hadfield for mm-hmm. space exploration. So I think that, again, you know, people love to learn, and this is just probably one of the top sites in terms of the learning experience.
2: I'm getting my master class right now from Sterling, so uh, it's... <laughs> <laughs> and and uh, it, it would be it would be almost impossible
0: to go through any kind of Christmas cycle, Amber, without talking books of some description. So what have you got for 2020?
5: Yeah, so this is a Canadian company. So obviously we want to... support our Canadian companies right now. It's called Sweet Reads, and this is a subscription box that you can send to someone that includes a book of the month, as well as a little sweet treat and another little gift that comes in the box. So it's a subscription service, and you could send someone a subscription from Sweet Reads uh, for as little as three months. And again, I think it's more about these experiences, and everybody loves to read. So this is a fun gift that you could order today or even on Christmas Eve.
0: <laughs> ah, okay. And and it lasts. it goes on then. It's not one of those one-offs is it?
5: Yeah, I kind of like that. So again, I mentioned the three month uh, subscription in case you want to do something that uh, is a little more affordable, but of course you can go longer six months or a year depending on your budget.
0: Of course. Okay. And these are all digital gift ideas from Amber Mac in Toronto. Carry on. You're doing great, Amber.
5: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Thank you. Okay, so uh, another one is, uh, and this is my last one, but it's called uh, Date Night in a Box. Um, and again, this is kind of fun, you know, especially for those parents, especially new parents who maybe haven't had a chance to go out because uh, they're home with their kids and we're all staying safe. So essentially, this is another subscription service, and it's a date night. So you would actually subscribe to the service, send it to someone as a gift, and they would get a box, set, and that would have a bunch of things like little games, maybe some treats and just to encourage couples to spend some time alone
0: ah so this would be for example now this would be the kind of gift that uh, you would you would look at for that young couple with the new baby in your life that uh, is a little preoccupied with the small person and doesn't seem to have a great deal of time for each other that happens and this would be a great gift a nice little distraction wouldn't it
5: It really would. And they have different themes. So let's say that, you know, someone loves dancing, but they can't go out to a bar. They have a box that's called Dinner and Dancing Awaits. So you can get that box for the couple to encourage them to have a night at home where they can dance and enjoy themselves. So there are different themes in terms of the boxes. But yes, I love this idea. For new parents.
2: Well, especially also for us, those of us who are, are living in this world we live in right now and we're spending a lot of time with our spouses. So getting creative in how we spend our evenings and date nights are now in at home usually. Uh, so that can be really cool. Uh, as a person who makes their decisions, oh, Christmas shopping starts Monday for me. Mm-hmm. So
0: mm-hmm. He's just got, <laughs> I'm I kind some, of a last minute guy uh, myself. We need
2: some ideas here. This is good. This is good. But Amber,
0: yeah, really, yeah. Sorry. Go ahead, please.
5: Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I'm kind of in the same boat, too, right? I mean, it just kind of creeps up on you, and then you're looking for these digital options. And I like the idea that I can send some friends, you know, uh, gift them a coffee. But if I want to send my mom a really great experience, I can get her a subscription box to these books. So there's really something for everyone. But
0: you're kind of in a, at a crossroads. We're doing what you do uh, in in, uh, in your line of work. You uh, you intersect with consumers and uh, manufacturers and retailers. Amber, what, what what's your take on Christmas 2020? It is so different this year. What what are you hearing from, for example, retailers, uh, many of whom just aren't seeing much traffic to begin with?
5: Yeah. I mean, it really kind of breaks my heart in terms of those small businesses, especially who have those storefronts on, you know, the main street and cities all across the country who are really hurting. So I would just say for the people who can afford to do so, uh, definitely go out and buy something from those small businesses. I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. And then also, I think being able to send a little gift to someone just to make their day. There's a lot of people who are going to be alone for the holidays. And, uh, again, I think we, these are some of the thoughtful things that you can do. So retailers are struggling and, uh, it's really important that we support them.
2: And so many of them have digital gift cards now. You can go onto their websites uh, and you can buy these digital gift cards to buy local. Uh, And I think it's really important for us to help out those local uh, businesses by buying local. And if they have gift cards, uh, these are, I'm a gift card king when it comes to (laughs) gift giving. So anytime I could do that, I do it.
0: Well, you know, and Amber, it's it's true because it it, it, it wasn't long ago, to George's point, it wasn't long ago that if you gave someone a gift card, that was lazy. Oh, come on, (laughs) that's the best. You could do. Come on! But now it's a, a gift card is is a really cool thing. It no matter yeah, no matter where you're sending the person, they're going to go somewhere, experience something for nothing, and that works. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, and
5: I mean you're kind of you're kind of giving two gifts, right? You're giving a gift to the small business owner because you're buying the card for them, helping them with their business, sure. And then you're giving that gift for someone else who can then go and uh, buy from that business. So I love the gift card ideas, or even you know a, a gift certificate for a local restaurant. I mean these are the type of things we can do for uh, takeout again just to recognize the situation that we're in right now and be thoughtful about our decisions with the gifts
0: and i think the local restaurant community would be delighted to hear you say that too because that is something that they uh they can do I mean, they're they're so limited in terms of their uh activities even more so in ontario where you are this morning than they are here in vancouver uh, amber but it's still not the same so any support and gift certificates are a great idea for local restaurants aren't they
5: yeah, absolutely. I mean, I live in a, a small community in downtown Toronto, and it's devastating to see some of these stores that have already uh, been kind of boarded up or uh, are vacant right now. And, and I know, again, people are just really struggling right now. So I think it's important, as you know, as easy as, as it is to order online and get everything shipped to your house, uh, try to find some sort of balance that also gives back to those small businesses and in turn helps our economy.
0: AmberMac.com. AmberMac.com is the website. It's a terrific website, a great resource. Lots and lots of information and useful tips for shoppers and uh, Christmas wishers everywhere. Amber, thanks so much for doing this with us this morning. Merry Christmas to you. We appreciate your time. All the best for the holiday season.
5: Yes, thank you. Thank you so much for having me.
0: Our pleasure. There's Amber Mac and her digital gift ideas, and lots more of them available at ambermac.com. George Affleck is co-hosting this morning with us, and George has been doing yeoman work on Christmas details with <laughs> traditions and food and music and all that sort of thing that uh, we asked him to to do a little background checking. So uh, we appreciate all of that <laughs> effort thrown into this, George. But now Fun. we turn our attention to uh, slightly more serious matters. As we, this is the first. Of. now we're just at december 20th today so we are officially at least 11 more days of years in review that will be happening on just about everybody's media <laughs> outlet right. everywhere in the world so why not start today
2: <laughs> why not why not get it all done
0: that's right. So you know, uh, let's, uh, let's talk to our guest and introduce our guest for us, please.
2: Well, Jen St. Dennis has uh, been around I, in my life as a, as a politician before. I got to know Jen as a reporter covering City Hall in Vancouver and covering civic politics uh, for the Metro, which became the star. Uh, and then she moved on to uh, the TIE now, which she's uh, reporting for on the downtown eastside issue. So she has a wealth of, of experience on civic issues, and uh, I'm really looking forward to chatting with her.
0: Jen, good morning. Thanks for joining us today. It's good to have you with us.
6: Good
2: morning. Thanks for having me.
0: Well, it's a pleasure. So, uh, George, uh, 2020, to say the very least, is going to go down in everybody's book as perhaps the weirdest year of our lifetime. Doesn't matter how old you are and how long you're going to live, it's going to be one of those weirdest years of our collective lifetimes.
2: Totally. And, Jen, you know, one of the things, and you covered City Hall a lot, and you covered municipal politics, and this year has been particularly challenging. But I, I, what I find interesting, and I was wondering what your take on this, is um, the role that we've seen a lot of the federal government and the venture governments play and how they've been dealing with the pandemics, whether it be financial healthcare related. Uh, but at a civic level, we've seen quite a diverse response. And I wonder if you can tell us a bit about the different kinds of responses that you've seen, certainly across this region, uh, of how city governments have been dealing with the pandemic.
6: Yeah, well, George, I can really only really speak to Vancouver because I've been quite focused on Vancouver. But uh, yeah, I can say that, you know, when the pandemic hit, and I don't know about you, George, but I don't even remember what was going on in city uh, government before March. Uh, it sort of, like, has lost my mind. <laughs> yeah. But um, that, that one weekend in March when everything kind of changed and we all went into lockdown, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we did see the cities uh, sort of move into overdrive. They had to deal with things like, do we open or close parks? Do we, you know, there was all this, like, angst over are too many people crowding into 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 the parks? Like, these really weird questions that we'd never had to think about before. Um, we also saw in Vancouver, we saw this big effort um, to really fill some gaps in services that happened um, in the downtown east side in particular with people who are homeless, who are precariously housed, and who have a lot of food security issues. Um, so we did see city uh, staff kind of shift, and I think one of the golf courses, maybe Fraser View, um, or Langara, sort of shifted um, to like, provide meals, uh, so shifted some of their operations to kind of do this emergency response. Um so we've seen cities have to deal with all those kind of issues and then kind of moving into the summer um some really thorny problems with things like um, growing homelessness, because what happened uh, was um, the, a lot of the SROs in the Downtown East side um, to try to prevent the spread of the virus decided to ban guests. Um, and there was a lot of services that were also closed that provided drop in space. So we saw immediately people on the streets and in a lot of different cities in, uh, in across BC, we saw tent cities grow.
2: One of the things that was happening before the, the pandemic sort of hit was the budgeting process and, that, and the heat about that that uh, the city was getting. But then early on in the pandemic, the mayor of Vancouver came out very publicly and said that we were in big trouble financially. And, and the media kind of reported as he said bankruptcy, he didn't say those words exactly. But he talked about the challenge that the city was was going to have. Uh, you know, then he got criticized a lot for his approach to that. I'm wondering if, uh, take us back to what happened that day when he decided to hold that press conference and talk about the city's financial woes.
6: Yeah, um, yeah, it was it was quite shocking actually to read that press release. I think it came out on a Sunday, and it was um, they were talking about a survey that they had uh, commissioned that showed that this wide uh, swath of Vancouverites um, were out of work, and a lot of people anticipating that they wouldn't be able to pay their property tax and have a lot of difficulty, and the city just forecasting um, a huge uh, um, financial deficit because of that. Um, so we saw a lot of concern from the mayor. Um, some of the stuff that they warned about actually didn't come to pass. So with the property tax thing, um, more people than they um, expected were actually able to pay their property tax, but they did see a lot of loss of revenue with things like parking fees and other things that kind of beef up the city budget. Um, And we also saw a blow come in the, in the latter half of the year when uh, the city was expecting all of this money from the federal government and Vancouver and a lot of the big cities ended up getting less than they thought because of this, Formula that the feds decided to put in place um, where the smaller cities actually got more money per capita than the larger cities. So so that was quite a blow, and we saw the city trying struggling and, and having to use some of its reserve funds uh,
2: in the budget. If they have them, and some cities have more than others and Vancouver in Vancouver's compared to, say, Burnaby's and other cities. One of the areas also is the whole mask culture and the whole mask issue, and I know there was a motion that came through council about uh, you know being strict about masks and not being strict about masks, and there seems to be a divide in the council in Vancouver about that issue specifically, that there seems to be an unwillingness on one half to be more strict and another half less strict.
6: Yeah, and I mean I think this is where you kind of have um that difficulty between the city trying the city trying to respond to issues um and then the province also having this other layer of authority and who is kind of right and we did like I'm sure that the councillors were responding to all of this pressure that they were feeling from their constituents who are probably emailing them all the time saying why the heck aren't you mandating masks in buildings? Um, so we did see that, and then we kind of did eventually see the province step in, which was probably—I mean, I'm guessing—for the city councillors and then and, and municipal government was a bit of a sigh of relief um, but when Bonnie Henry stepped in and did put in the mask mandate. Um, that probably took a lot of um, heat off of off of the municipal governments. I'm thinking
2: right, and and the, and the mayor himself in Vancouver has taken a lot of he's had a lot of ups and downs when it comes to sort of his public relations side of things. That there, he seems to, seems to be a lot of gaffes and a lot of uh, criticism of his approach to things. Uh, would you say that there's an inconsistency to to his uh, his way his style of uh, of governance and, and communicating?
6: I I think what we're seeing with this mayor is that he is the mayor of a council that doesn't have a um, clear, like one clear power center. Um, So we see him trying to kind of almost herd cats, it seems like. And so sometimes I think he comes off as wishy-washy or saying one thing but not actually following through. Um, I think part of that is that he is in charge of this council that has this mix of different parties, and not even all of the people on the same parties always vote the same way, so you never really know where council is going to come down on any particular issue. You kind of just have to watch and see, and go and sit through these extremely long council meetings, as I'm sure you've noticed.
0: Joined by Jen St. Dennis from the TAI, we're taking a look at the year in review and talking mostly about Vancouver, but it happened in Vancouver, Jen, it also happened in Surrey, and Coquitlam, in Victoria, in Richmond, in every municipality in the province this summer. City councils had to get off their duffs and get themselves organized to help out restaurants and other service providers that otherwise would have been literally wiped out because of the pandemic. They had severe closure restrictions. The one possibility that some restaurateurs saw as a solution to just survival, no profit indicated at all, just maybe making it, was patios. The people in Vancouver and other municipal councils pivoted pretty quickly. How would you grade the work done by Vancouver City Council in terms of swift action to help out people in, in dire straits?
6: Yeah, I think they did move fairly quickly, uh, much more quickly than they normally do. as yes. you know, Vancouver in particular has a reputation for a lot of red tape for business owners, especially restaurants when it comes to things like permits for renovations. And, um, you know, getting a yeah, patio is like a whole thing where it's usually very, very slow. Um, in this case, they did move quickly, which is a good thing because we all have our favorite restaurants. Uh, we all have these cafes in our neighborhoods that really are the backbone of our neighborhoods and we would really just hate to see them lose it would just be such a hole in our in our uh, vibrant city neighborhoods so uh, people were able to get patios the city was really (laughs) um, trying to publicize this a lot they were trying to send out uh, to media all these lists of like how many patios they had they had um, approved Mm -hmm. Um, some some restaurants were kind of if you know they they were able to kind of get media attention if they weren't getting a patio so there was a lot of pressure being put on the city um and there was it was interesting to watch um, just kind of watching this and moving into the downtown east side beat which i did in the summer because there were some inequalities in how the patios were granted so the downtown east side women's center has been pretty vocal about how long it took for them to get um, a patio to help their clients Come and gather, but in a safe way to kind of access some of the services. So there has been, you know, there's been a lot of great movement on that, but there's also been some questions about, um, you know, whether. It could have been faster for some, for some
2: people. Government can move fast, as we're learning here, Jen, a little mm-hmm. bit here. Uh, and I think that the downtown Eastside has some uh, re- restrictions on patios in general as part of our city's regulations, as far as I remember. But then one of the other controversies that came out related to patios was a sitting councillor has got himself in a bit of hot water uh, related <sighs> to right, his own yeah. restaurant, and he's going through a bit of a challenge there
6: yeah um, this is something uh, Dan Famano at the Sun especially reported on um and so, yeah, this is Mike Weeb. Uh, he owns a restaurant in Mount Pleasant called Eight and a Half Lounge. and uh, yeah, the controversy has been about whether he should have recused himself from this bo- this vote to um, move forward on this patio program because he actually ended up his own restaurant. Mm-hmm applied for the program and got a patio fairly quickly. Um, So yeah, there's a challenge right now being mounted um, about whether he needs to actually step down because he violated conflict of interest rules. So that is progressing. We'll have to see the outcome because then that will move us into a by-election, which is really interesting with this council (laughs) because of its makeup and it could shift the balance of power
2: it could, it could. I want to move on to the downtown east side. Obviously, it's your beat now at the Tai, which is uh, you know obviously a hot button issue in, in for years in Vancouver. Um, and and you broke the story about the, the sale or purchase of uh, the Regent and Balmoro hotels from the notorious uh, landowners, the Sahodas. These are uh, you know single room occupancy hotels mm-hmm. that had been shut down uh, a couple of years ago. Um, tell us a bit about what happened here. And, and, and one of the things that I find challenging, I think I've been vocal about this, and is is the, the lack of transparency on this purchase.
6: Yeah, so this is a story that I and a lot of reporters in Vancouver have been following for years and years because it's just been uh, so compelling and so um, frustrating to see these landowners um, operate these buildings like this in such a awful way, and, um, maintenance always being deferred, uh, tenants living in just horrific, horrific conditions. I mean, whether these buildings even qualified as residential buildings, I sort of question because sometimes... Sometimes the toilets didn't work, sometimes there was no heat or hot water, and it was just very, very unhealthy for people to live in these buildings for years and years and years, like decades. Um, finally the city had gone through, gone to the point where they had emptied the buildings because they were, had deemed them no longer safe. Um, and had uh, started the process of actually expropriating the buildings. Um, and that happened a year ago. And it had kind of been progressing through the court. Um, the Sahotas were challenging the expropriation in court, which we kind of expected. Um, and then uh, I got a tip that the buildings had changed hands and looked up the land titles. And it was indeed true. Um, but the city said that they couldn't release the price because the Sahotas had insisted on secrecy, um, on keeping the the price um, uh, hidden or confidential, um, not just for maybe a year, but in perpetuity, because both parties would have had to agree before the price was released. Um, so yeah, obviously, this caused a lot of concern because it's taxpayer money. I'm um,
0: uh, just going to say, Jen, it sounds like somebody got taken to the cleaners. If, if, they're, if they're, it's that tightly nailed down in terms of details, it sounds it's like it could be a rather one sided deal.
6: Yeah, and there's this whole other element too of people who have lived in these buildings or have had family live in the buildings. A lot of people have died in these buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, they also wanted to know uh, just how much did the Saudis get. Um, so then I, through another source, I was able to find out um, what the amount was. It was apparently 11.5 million um, to settle this expropriation. And so the question of like whether or not that was fair market value, I think, is kind of. Up, up for grads. Yeah. Uh, these buildings had, their assessment had, had kind of fluctuated wildly because. After the expropriation attempt started, and after they were emptied, the value of them just dropped. They like well, lost millions and millions of dollars yeah. in value.
2: And your story actually so, indicates this uh, that uh, there is as there might be a community planning process that moves forward that, in effect, might increase the value of those properties significantly. Uh, can you tell us a bit about what that? What that community planning process? Is it Just those sites, or are they looking at redoing the entire downtown east side community plan?
6: I haven't heard that, but uh, yeah, they are going to do a community consultation process for the Belmoral and Regent sites because the plan is to redevelop them into social housing for, you know, for the lowest income people in Vancouver, people who pay the $375 shelter rate from welfare. Um, So that's the plan. They're going to do this community consultation process and then redevelop the buildings.
0: So for a lot of people, Jen, we've only got a few seconds left. Does this mean ultimately the end of tents in Strathcona Park?
6: Oh, well, um, that's a thorny question. We've had tent cities in Vancouver for a really long time. Well, a lot
0: of people are asking it.
6: Yeah, um, I you know, people always say the solution is to build more housing, and I think that's correct. Uh, I think we're going to have to look at um, really involving people who live in those tent cities because a lot of times they have actually lived in supportive housing but have not been able to continue living there because of rules or being evicted. So I think we need to talk to them about what's not working for them in supportive housing and try to figure out how we can Um, you know, do better in the future to keep these people housed.
0: So no swift end to the process, obviously. Jen, we're out of time. We thank you for yours. It's great to have you on the program this morning. Thank you.
6: Thank you so much. Thanks, Jen.
0: Jen St. Dennis from the tie and uh, a partial look at the year in review uh, from the perspective of the city of Vancouver. We've been going around checking with community theater and arts groups around the lower mainland, all over Metro Vancouver, uh, just finding out how everybody's doing and, and managing to get through all of this. A few weeks ago, we had our first visit with the people at Metro Theater, and they're back with us today in the person of Chris Adams, who is the director of A Christmas Carol, the radio play. Chris, good morning. Thanks for joining us good morning thanks for having me well it's great to have you with us so uh, it's it's a great place a great medium to advertise a radio play don't you think <laughs> on the radio chris <laughs> so we figured this I, I this, do, yeah. th- this one is, is is pretty much a gimme so tell us <laughs> a, a little bit about how you came to uh deciding to do this is it a pandemic Driven decisions, specifically.
7: <laughs> uh, it was, yeah. Uh, Metro, for the past thirty-eight years, has been doing a traditional British pantomime at Christmas time. Yes, and uh, and and we just we figured that with, with COVID and everything going on, that uh, even back in in May and June when we were trying to figure out what to do at Christmas, that uh, that the pantomime would not be able to happen. And so we we put our heads together and came up with this idea of a, of a radio play. Um, and, of course, A Christmas Carol being one of the most famous uh, Christmas pieces and, sure. and lend- lending itself very well to the radio play uh, idea.
0: So now how does one go about seeing, participating in, uh, g- connecting with A Christmas Carol, the radio play, Chris?
7: Sure. Um, what we wanted to do was still uh, keep something visual. So although you could uh, listen to the show, Uh, There is a visual aspect. We came to it in a COVID-friendly place. All the actors have been uh, separated in their separate pods, uh, more than six feet away from each other. Uh And uh, we pre-recorded it a couple of weeks ago. uh, And and it's quite interesting to watch. So they're creating the sound effect. No, you can watch them create, you can watch them do the wind machine and the thunder sheet and the little door that opens and closes. So everything you remember or know about radio plays is there and you can
0: watch it visually. So that's something that, you know, I mean, the the radio play is really a forgotten I, I don't think art. my kids
2: know what that is. No,
0: I don't think they do either, <laughs> no. George. And, and, you know, uh, back in the pre-television days, it's hard to believe, but families would actually gather in the living room around the radio mm-hmm. to listen to The Shadow and all of those yeah. other wonderful plays. And part of the excitement or part of the enjoyment was all of the sound yeah. effects, Chris. All mm-hmm. of the, as you say, mm-hmm. the wind. Machine, The squeaky door and all of that stuff. So as you as you show this, uh, or as the play goes forward, you actually show sound effects people making sound effects, right? Absolutely. Yeah, we
7: have six brilliant actors, not only playing uh, upwards of 40 characters, they are doing all of the sound effects live at the same time as well.
0: Fantastic. So how long has it taken to organize, because you had to shoot this uh, essentially uh, uh, as, a, as a movie, and then you put it on, it, it's a play uh, on on video about something on the radio. It's a multimedia <laughs> thing you got going on here, Chris.
7: It is, yeah. I mean, that's the thing that, that COVID has taught us. We have to be malleable, and we have to uh, create what we are allowed to create, you know, strictly listening to, to everything Dr. Henry says and and, uh, and we wanted to create something that could be malleable. So if we would have been allowed, we would have had a, a socially distant audience of no more than 50 come and see the play. Uh, but the plan was to always film it and, and uh, let anybody who wanted to see it, whether they felt comfortable with that or not. As you know, restrictions came in, and, and we cannot have that socially distant audience. Yeah. So. Uh, digital stream is uh is the number one and and that goes live tomorrow
0: yeah, I was just going to say it starts tomorrow and uh, so there's we're we're happy to contribute to the buzz in advance of the of the beginning of the opening Chris. what do you yeah. hear about demand
7: uh well it's been uh pretty wonderful we We decided early on that we would make the the uh the price i guess you would call it by donation. Uh, pay what you can we didn't want we didn't want anyone to not be able to afford to watch this if they wanted to okay um so you can make a donation to Metro theater and uh, you are given a, a link to to the stream starting tomorrow okay. um, and what's great is because Metro theater is a not for profit registered charity if you donate more than twenty dollars then you get a tax receipt.
0: Okay, so I'm on metrotheater.com right now, Chris, and I'm, I'm just yep. scrolling, scrolling down the home page, and it says, watch A Christmas Carol, the radio play online, and it goes on to say, by donation to Metro Theater, we're proud to release the digital stream of the show, and it says, click here to donate, so if I click on that, that gives me the link to be able to watch A Christmas Carol, the radio play, Right.
7: Yes, you do have to make a donation. Yes, of course, uh,
0: yeah. So it, it could be a dollar, but,
7: uh, you know, it could be a hundred. So whatever you're <laughs> feeling. <laughs> yeah.
2: Well, I, you know, Chris, I, to be honest, I, I think I hope that people do contribute to a good amount because Metro Theatre does such great work and, and the pantomime that, you know, it's such a great experience and I hope to see it back next year. Um, so I definitely encourage people to get out there and help any arts groups that are across the region. But uh, for you guys, this yeah, is I, a really I, creative way to make it work.
7: Oh, thank you. Yeah, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, that's what we came to it was, it just would have been so sad if if the theater couldn't couldn't give anything to the community this Christmas, right? If it just sat dark and empty. So we just wanted to create something that people could enjoy. Uh, it's not it's not your traditional metro pantomime, but it is something for the whole family that that we hope everyone will love.
0: Uh, you know, Chris, as we've been doing this now for a couple of months on Sunday mornings, the last segment of every uh, of every show, and we've we've discovered a common denominator through all of uh, the people in the arts community, be it uh, artists or actors or directors, performers. Uh, the, the the common denominator is this incredible pent up desire to contribute, to be part of what's going on, to be a positive force in the midst of a pretty negative a group experience and so our thumbs are up to you and your colleagues at metro yeah. theater we wish you to break a leg with a christmas carol <laughs> the radio play online we wish you considerable success chris thanks a lot
7: Thank you so much. Merry
0: Christmas. Uh, Merry Christmas to you, too. There is the director of A Christmas Carol, the radio play. That's Chris Adams of Metro Theater. George, we're fresh out of time. Did you have a good one? That was
2: fun. Thanks for having me. That
0: was lots of fun.